Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common. Go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this episode. In the red corner... We're heading to Los Angeles circa 1937 as Jack Nicholson's private detective sticks his nose where it doesn't belong and suffers the consequences, quite literally, from 1974. We're taking a trip to Chinatown. Uh, Mrs. Mulray, may I present Mr. Giddis? Mrs. Mulray, how do you do? My husband... I believe, is seeing another woman. She tells me she's you. She hires me. Now, whoever put her up to it doesn't have anything against me. They're out to get your husband. If I can see him, I can help him. While in the blue corner, we're back in the City of Angels, although now it's the 1950s. And with a series of deadly murders ruining the city's reputation, Guy Pearce is on the case using his brain, and Russell Crowe is helping using his brawn from 1997. It's L.A. Confidential. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze. Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Butters. I goddamn near lost my nose and I like it. I like breathing through it. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And welcome to this week's Duel of the detectives as Chinatown takes on LA Confidential. These were your choices, Christopher. They were, Alex. Yeah. A reminder of the clue you gave last week. Well, before I do my clues, right. I've got an email to read out. All right, sure. From Alan Cresswell. Hello, Alan. 
who wrote in and said, Hi all, I thought I'd email in to defend Alex's honour against the your clue was shit allegation from Chris. I got Olympus has fallen and White House down immediately from Alex's clue of fallen down. I don't have Twitter anymore because, you know, it's an absolute hellhole. So I could, <laughs> I could neither write in uh, with my guest nor see Chris's clue. I've got your back, Alex. Thank you very much, Alan. So that's bothered me. I listened back to the podcast. I didn't say your clue was shit. It was an implication. You said your clue was, you were getting in the claim that your clue was shit before I could say it. Yeah. I never said your clue was shit. But I think we both know from even this exchange that you would have said it given the opportunity. It's an excellent clue. If Alan Cresswell got it from that, (laughs) it's a perfect clue. It was a great clue. Uh, And it's a much better clue than mine. Mine were weak this week. It was LA Neo Noir on the show. Mm. And then on Twitter, I put Fedora's Fall Guys and Femme Fatales. Yeah, we had a few guesses. If you don't follow us on Twitter, like Alan, because it is a hellhole, one of the friendlier (laughs) circles of that hell (laughs) is our ClashPod Twitter account. It's full of lovely people. We are at ClashPod on Twitter. Please come and join us. So some of the guesses. uh, Marion... Baudet or Baudet? I can't decide which, but hello, Marion. Uh, she and indeed Mark Shea both went with Black Dahlia versus LA Confidential. Makes sense, except an unfair fight because Black Dahlia is not good. I did not enjoy this <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, we wouldn't have been watching that film again if I had anything to do with it. Uh, Frank B., last week's winner of the guesses, went with LA Confidential versus Mulholland Drive. This one... I really like, and I can't explain why. Uh, this comes from Toxic Liverpool fan, a.k.a. Jake, uh, who said, Bugsy Malone versus Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's good. It works, yeah. doesn't it? It's solid. Really works. Great suggestion, Did, did Jake. you see the one from Chris Thomas? I've just forgotten about this. Go on. This made me laugh. Uh, Chris Thomas suggested Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Duck Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a spelling mistake. Yep. Uh, it could, but maybe it's not, but... That's not a bad idea as well. Dick Tracy with Roger Rabbit or yeah. Duck Tracy. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. It just for me, Bugsy Malone, Roger Rabbit. It feels right. It feels right. Uh, but the winner and the only correct answer for our duel of the detectives is from Russell, who went Chinatown versus LA Confidential, proving that this week he is the greatest detective. Congratulations, Russell. All right. Do you want to guide us through the connections, Chris? These were your choices. Yes, um, and I picked them because I wanted to class up the joint, as mm. I said, after my uh, Stuart Little sex joke a couple of weeks back. Um, but also, I love both these movies, and I had no idea going in which one I prefer. So I thought it keeps things interesting for me, if nothing else. What connections did you guys here. spot? That's why we're here. Keep things interesting for you. Uh, did you guys clock any uh, connections beyond the fact that they're both L.A. neo-noirs? Yes. <laughs> So Curtis Hansen is a connection. So Curtis Hansen directed LA Confidential, but when Robert Town was struggling with the first draft of Chinatown, Curtis Hansen lent him an apartment to write in. Wow. Did you know that? I no. did, I could tell by the expression yeah, on your face. I thought he was too young. That's amazing. <laughs> I read it in an interview with Robert Town and I hope it's right. That's great. Okay. Yeah, Let's good. just say it's right. Yeah, well, just to, uh, just to bring the level down, I actually bothered to write down Los Angeles. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, busted noses. Jake Gitties, Sue Lefferts both have bandages on their noses. Very good. Um, I've got a good one, uh, just to balance out my uh, Los Angeles debacle. Initials embroidered on shirt pockets. Both <laughs> Jack Vincennes and Jake Gitties have their initials on their shirt pockets in embroidery. Uh, beautiful women wear lovely hats. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it was olden times, so... 
Yeah, beautiful men wear lovely hats yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true. It was a great time when a man wouldn't leave the house without a hat. Have you ever <laughs> seen any old photos of London circa this period? And it's just, it's a sea of hats. It's, it's beautiful. Hats I re- and smog. I, well, yeah. I mean, once Can't you see the hats for the smog. <laughs> once you peer through the like smog. Like peeping over the clouds, just all these little tops of hats. <laughs> yeah, you don't, know, you don't know who's under the hat. <laughs> um, sex photos. Yes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Sex photos are passed around in both films. Ger- Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Did the soundtrack, of, did the score for both movies. And that gets him up to six uh, appearances on Clash of the Titles. This is Guy Pierce's second, as far as I can tell as well. This is, we did Ravenous with Guy yep. Pierce, and that's it. We don't celebrate We don't two. celebrate the two. Do we no, not? but no. a double hat trick. Uh, that is Chinatown, Gremlins, Gremlins 2, Basic Instinct, Congo, and LA Confidential. Sorry, Guy. Went too early. Uh, <laughs> a few more, then we'll mention you. Yeah, Memento could be in, Memento, his, in our yeah. future. Um, uh, film noirs where the, the femme fatale isn't the villain, is really the victim. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't trust old men who look like they could kick the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> Are these the two hardest old men in film history in both so. these films? They're fucking terrifying, both of them. <laughs> really frightening. Wait, which ones are we talking about? Dudley in LA Confidential. The freaking villain of both films. Yeah, and right. John Huston is terrifying. And it, now it, across. Right, yeah. Bigger but, than Jack Nicholson. I don't think they could. I mean, they're both menacing gentlemen, but they couldn't kick the shit out of you. I 100,000% believe that Noah Cross could kick the shit out of Jake. And he walks with a cane. Yeah, he would He would, He would. would use it as a weapon. <laughs> what, like Condor Man. <laughs> There's a good film, Condor Man. <laughs> it's just me and my trusty cane. It's a gun. It's brilliant. Have you got any more connections? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, 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 I stopped it too, just like Guy mm. Pearce. <laughs> okay. You got more? Not really. I mean, there's sex at the heart of both stories, so the overarching connection could have been Californication, mm-hmm. if you like that. But what I'm going with is, what is what, what month is it? Now? Yeah. November? November? Not on the podcast, it's November. Oh, lovely. <laughs> right, there we go. There we go. What he did was lower it with Californication yeah. and then bang. November, like it, like it a lot. So, Chris gave me LA Confidential because you were frightened to do Chinatown. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. And he gave Victoria Chinatown because she's brave. She's. I a... am quite scared of this. <laughs> For the first time in my life, it's like I should have rehearsed. It's the oldest film we've done. Is it? Yep. Okay. Uh, so we do it chronologically, which means I'll be doing LA Confidential on Thursday. Today is Chinatown. Victoria, take us on a journey. Jack Nicholson plays Jake Gitt. Kidding, Gitties, that's a hilarious in-joke. A private detective with a matrimonial metier who's drawn into a land and water grab that goes all the way to the top via the family troubles, and that's putting it lightly, of Faye Dunaway's damaged Mrs Mulray and her terrifying dad, Noah Cross. Evelyn... You're a disturbed woman. You cannot hope to provide. Evelyn, put that gun away. Let the police handle this. He owns the police. Get away from her. You'll have to kill me first. Get away. Get This is a film that forces you to confront the truth of how a city could have ever flourished in a desert, as well as redefining genre conventions to weave them into a deeply unsettling allegorical tale of power and corruption of natural resources, taking things you shouldn't have to future-proof yourself in the most despicable way 
But when all is said and done, that's just the way things are and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And if that's a bit heavy, I refer you to the actual dialogue. Are you alone? Isn't everyone? You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. It's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown. Now then, this is obviously a massive film for a lot of people. Mm. And everyone I've spoken to this week about us doing these films are like uh, breathless about this film. So it's Mark's favourite film of all time. So I saw it. I know. And he had on his bedroom wall that poster, the one where Faye Dunaway is like in smoke Mm. with the brown border. Mm. So when I first met him, I'd never fucking heard of Chinatown, obviously. But I thought the poster was cool. So I slept with it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But that poster was like above our bed for a really long time. Um, and then I watched it and I got it and the script is obviously revered as the finest example of structure and dialogue and it won an Oscar and all the rest of it but it's quite intimidating to talk about this film because I don't want to upset anyone Um, but most excitingly I believe Alex you've never seen it I, I haven't seen it. No, that's very true. Uh, I do feel a little bit embarrassed. No, don't be embarrassed about because that. to watch it with fresh eyes, I think we're going to have a really good conversation about mm. it because I think it's become perfect over the years because people love it so much. But to see it fresh, you'll be able to see if it really is perfect. Yeah, I feel a bit bad because when I used to live with Mark, yeah. he did go, "This is my favourite film. Yeah. Let's watch <laughs> it." This post, this post has bagged me lots of chicks. <laughs> yeah. One chip repeatedly. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. And uh, yeah, he did say, "Let's watch it together." Mm. And you said no. I went, mm, sound, is it old? Is it long? Is it old and long? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is it set in space? Does anything explode? Is there a monster? And the answer to all those was no. And I was like, let's watch The Matrix again. <laughs> so, uh, no, I uh, I haven't seen it, uh, despite being told I should watch it. There are some blind spots in my movie CV, and that this is one of them. So. Oh, don't be, there's fucking tons in mine. Like, don't oh. be daft. It's just pure chance that I'd seen this. And I've only seen it once before this week, because mm. I didn't feel the need to revisit it, necessarily. Okay. What about you? Yeah, I saw it when I was about 15. I think probably recorded it off the telly. I was old enough, thankfully, because there's a lot of films, classic films that I watched when I was a bit too young. Right. But 15's fine for this. And thoroughly enjoyed it. Watched it a couple of times since. Really? So you watched, because I did try and watch it as a kid. This is before Mark tried to make me watch it. And I think I must have got about 10 minutes in and went, nope, not for me. <laughs> too slow. So, no, I was fine. Okay. I was fine. Okay. Okay. So, But so... you were about 40. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> When brand. he says he was 15, you were like five or six. I was dressing like Noah Cross. <laughs> Walking with a cane. <laughs> so shall we just do a bit of background? And I've tried to pare it down because we, I think we could talk about the background to it all day, taking in as it does some of the w- most well-known figures of the time, and particularly Robert Evans, who I'd love to talk about, but let's just go through. Um, so it was originally titled Water and Power, uh, it's Robert Towns' original script using the California Water Wars as the backdrop for his take on a 1930s gumshoe detective story. So at the time, Robert Town was working on a script for the last detail, but was having trouble getting that made, he says, because of the profanity in it. So it's, it kind of stalled. So he went to Jack, who was a friend of his. They'd been to acting classes together. Or they, they, they'd known they, each other they'd really lived well. together. Yeah. They, but yeah, they went to acting classes as well. Yeah. And wanted to, and so said to him, why not do a picture about a crime that's right out in front of everybody instead of a jewel encrusted falcon, referring to like Dashiell Hammett, make it something as prevalent as water faucets. That's taps to you. Thank you. Um, so, and he says, so that was the beginning of it. Um, the script is considered perfect by a lot of people. Um, but Robert Town was initially unsure how to structure it. Do you do the incest reveal first? Do you do the, so, spoiler alert. Or the, the, the it's the oldest film <laughs> yeah. we've done. I know I've only just seen it, but 
And then, you know, I think he spoke about this with Roman Polanski about, you know, once you realise where it should come first, it all sort of makes perfect sense because the incest is the underbelly, but you've got the literal and metaphorical raping of the future and raping of the land. Um, because uh, Robert Town knew Jack Nicholson so well, the part of Jake was written for him. But initially, Jane Fonda was considered to play Mrs. Mulray, but they want—they really wanted Faye Dunaway. So anyway, it's Robert Evans that put this thing together. So he's the producer, but he's also, at the time, was Paramount's head of production. Now, everyone's probably read the Peter Biskin book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, correct? Correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, a very fun, I mean, there's a lot about Robert Evans in there, but a, a story that I particularly like about that is because Robert Evans had a little bit of a reputation. Um, and so allegedly his housekeeper would bring him breakfast in bed with a little bit of paper, which had the name of whichever woman happened to be lying next to him. So, <laughs> I mean, these things are probably How did true. the housekeeper know? <laughs> it just reminded me of Pepper Potts and Iron Man. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's an element of Tony Stark that Robert Downey Jr. modelled on Robert Evans because he was the quintessential playboy of yeah. the 60s and 70s in Hollywood. And the fact that he sort of inveigled his way into the to the movies. So he had his he had a fashion brand. It was bought by Revlon and he makes a fuck ton of money and then he's like, I want to make films. But obviously to the to, it's a very tight-knit... Um, what's the word? Community? No, community, but like uh, elitist and whatever else. And they don't like this new money coming in and being like, I made a mint selling girls' clothes and <laughs> now I'm going to make The Godfather and whatever else. Uh, but Paramount were in love with him because he revived their fortunes uh, through The Godfather. Um, what else did he do? Love Story, did he do that? Yeah, I believe so, yeah, because he was with Ali McGraw. And, and they made that deal with him. So rather than get a bonus each year, he ran the studio, but he wasn't producing films himself. And they said, rather than give you a bonus each year, we'll let you produce your own movie. Yeah. And this was his first project. But he said it upset everyone else on the studio a lot. Because he was running the studio, he was supposed to be treating everyone equally. But once his own film was being made. Everyone was like, well, you're clearly putting that before our film. So it caused a lot of tension. Yeah, um, and also when he did The Godfather, I read that he didn't like, system. he didn't get it and he saw Marlon Brando in The Godfather and said, what the fuck's going on? Are we going to put subtitles on this movie? And was like, you just got to like, trust that it's going to work out. And then apparently... Francis Ford Coppola turns in an early cut and Robert Evans described it as, quote, a long, bad trailer for a really good film. Wow. <laughs> Hilarious. And funny, about just about Robert Evans jumping ahead, the reason the sequel, The Two Jakes, fell apart in about 1985 was because Tan was writing and directing this time. Uh, Evans insisted on playing the villain in the film. Right, yeah. Evans, who hadn't previously acted, really, he's going <laughs> to act opposite Nicholson in the sequel to his big... It was just, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so Robert Evans brings on Roman Polanski. It was a troubled shoot as these things go. Um, there's a lot of stories about Roman Polanski not um, treating Faye Dunaway very well. And she has a reputation as being challenging to work with. Uh, but the apocryphal stories are he wouldn't let her have a comfort break in a scene where she's in a limo or she's in a shop in her car. Um, and he wouldn't let her out to have a wee. So she threw a cup of piss at him. See, she denies that. Yeah, I know. She denies that. He he does admit, though, in, in the scene when they're sitting down at a restaurant, her and Jake, to pulling one of her hairs out. Yeah, he said, is that a grey hair? And yanked it out of her head. Yeah, it was, it wouldn't, it was sticking out and it wouldn't, it wouldn't stay flat. So he pulled it out and he said, I did do that. And she got upset and understandably. And yep. also he wouldn't help her with the character. And that, apparently, and that's difficult because she's, she's meant to, she's got so many faces and so many fronts. She is trying to be unknowable as a person. So an actor may need a way in. So the classics, you know, she's supposed to have said to him, you know, what's my motivation? And he said, it's your salary. Yeah. Fucking crack on. He did say that, yeah. Because yeah. uh, there's, there's some great documentaries about it and Polanski sort of holds his hands up to all this behaviour. Yeah. 
Um, and as you've mentioned, Jerry Goldsmith was the composer, but not at first. Uh, there's another score by Philip Lambro, but with about two weeks ago, they listened to that score and then thought, that is batshit and we don't want it. And I did listen to a bit of it and it's fucking nuts. You'd like it. Yeah. yeah, you'd fucking love it. Was it like Limp Bizkit? <laughs> it's just this like discordant, atonal, spiky nightmare dreamscape thing it doesn't make any uh, sense thanks that just screams like a nightmare spiky hellscape <laughs> hello <laughs> um so that's as much as i want to say but if there's anything else please jump in no nope sounds good okay I am really nervous. Can you tell? Why? Die? No. Why? I don't know. Who cares? Yeah, right. <laughs> Honestly, who cares? I don't know. No one listening does. No, they don't. Do they? Do you? No. Okay, fine. All right, so here we go. I'm just going to go through. the. I'm, I'm not going to keep up with the plot, particularly of what the waterboard is doing, because I find yeah, that fascinating. Please don't. But, <laughs> please yeah. don't. Having seen it twice and read it, there every time some when you read reviews of it, someone else puts a spin on what the conspiracy is, and you think, "Oh, is that it?" It <laughs> like, is dense, isn't it? It's densely yeah. plotted, but it's based on real life. So, so fine. All right. So we first of all, oh, I should say they did record a voiceover, but didn't use it. Isn't that fascinating? Aren't you happy about that? Well, I am happy about it, but that would make it so. One of the things that's said about this film a lot is it inverts the traditional noir types. Mm. So again, the femme fatale is a victim and not the villain and jake he is hard boiled but he doesn't have this sort of he still has an in a, a small innocence mm. do you know what i mean because he knows his job is grubby i think yes but, from the moment in the yeah. barbers but he's not really at peace with that because he, t- he tries to defend his job he's not like yeah fuck it oh, this is how i make my living mm. he's like I'm, I'm an honest man aren't i and he doesn't even look convinced of it no but he feels compelled to say yeah it. and that fragility makes him more likable there's a vulnerability exactly. about him you're right yeah so anyway, we meet Jake um, with a client and this is a, a husband who's being cheated on. And so we see what Jake's uh, bread and butter is. And he even says here, like, what kind of guy do you think I am? But when you look at the photographs he's taken or one of his associates have taken, that's the kind of guy you are. Those are very sexually explicit photos. There's no uh, deference made to anyone's reputation or modesty or feelings. He's been paid to find these photos and he seems to be happy to do but that. But he does, uh, the next client he has, the fake uh, Mrs. Mulroney, he does Mulray. Say, Mulray, sorry. Um, he does suggest to her, does she really want to know? So I imagine he had that conversation with Curly as well, where he was like, yeah. just, he, I think he uses the phrase, let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah. So he does get, he doesn't go, brilliant, give me some cash, I'll sort yeah. it. He, he is like, there is a way that you could just walk away from this and just not know. Yeah. And it is, it's fantastic the way he says to the fake Mrs. Mulray, she's like, I believe my husband is cheating on me, whatever she says. And he goes, oh, no, really? Like, he doesn't make an effort to be like, to, to pretend to be, yeah, I love all that. But did you notice as well? So, again, Alex, as a first-time viewer, when you saw the fake Mrs. Mulray and then later you see Faye Dunaway, the real Evelyn Mulray, did you see the differences between them in terms of their costumes and in terms of their costume designer? They were careful to give the audience some clues. So the fake Mrs. Mulray is she's wearing a, this very ornate like black fascinator and she looks like what you think money looks like. Mm. But the real Mrs. Mulray, who is very, very, very moneyed, has like a muted colour palette. She's um, held in, like buttoned up uh, and all of this. And so that to me, did you not... Did, when you saw the fake Mrs. Mulray, were you like, yeah, yeah, that's a rich woman? Or did you think that's someone pretending to be a rich woman? I thought that was a rich woman. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of rich totally. woman that you yeah. like. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and apparently... <laughs> Um, the costume department and Roman Polanski fell out about um, Faye Dunaway's red nail polish 
Because a woman of that class and of that money would not wear a red nail polish in the real 1930s. And there's a bit of back and forth about, we understand that, but we want it's what the audience think the 30s was like, which is red nail polish. So someone with, I mean, someone with a lot of money wouldn't wear red nail polish. No, it's too... Uh, it, is this is this part of the... Uh, this is my homage right, okay. to <laughs> yeah. the four, 30s. Because you've got red nail polish on it. It's lovely. It's pink, but it's fine. Show me. That's red. It's pink. <laughs> That's yeah, red. That looks red. It's red. Um, weirdly, uh, Polanski had Dunaway's makeup in the film done to look like his own mother's makeup. Really? Which I think is quite weird. Her her eyebrows and her her lips. Her eyebrows are, are crackers. <laughs> yeah, her eyebrow her eyebrows and her lips are designed to look like Polanski's memories of his mother. Whoa. Okay. More on him later. <laughs> this is the same Polanski who wouldn't let her go for a wee, apparently. So, I mean, there sounds like a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, anyway, uh, a little bit... Mother, of... you've got grey hair. Yeah. Oh, wow. And very thin eyebrows. Why? Mm. Um, so, back to the mystery. So, Hollis Mulray, Mrs. Mulray's husband, she thinks he's been having an affair and then he's gone missing. Now... This scene, Jake goes to Evelyn's house and meets the gardener. And the gardener is uh, working on the ponds and talking about something being bad for the grass. Mm. Um, This is why a lot of people think the script is perfect, because Jake sees something glinting in the bottom of the pond, Mm. but doesn't have time to really investigate it because Mm. Evelyn disturbs him. So those will turn out to... That's a huge clue. And potentially he could have solved everything there and then. But... He has to follow the rest of the steps in order for that glinting glass to make sense. And that's why the script is so well yeah. liked. It's a lovely detail. Did you recognise, just to bring it down a, a little bit, did you recognise the butler who opens yes. the door to him? <laughs> James Wong. James Hong. 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 Lopan. Yes. Our old friend Lopan. Big um, Trouble in Little China, yeah. Which means you could call this Big Trouble in Little Chinatown. You could. And I just did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've even written it in red. I'm so excited about that one. So then we find out that Hollis... <laughs> you are um, so happy about that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Hollis drowned and a local drunk drowned and the different parts of the river are sort of running every night even though we're supposed to be in a drought. And at this point, Jake nearly gets washed away and then Roman Polanski cuts his nose. And the first time I watched this film, I probably didn't even recognise Roman Polanski. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, what the fuck is he doing in this film? And it really brought me out of the film. Now, that could either be because, right, he's not very good at what he's supposed to be doing. Um, well, let's start with that because he really isn't very good. No, he's rubbish. He's very. He, he feels like he's walked off the set of Bugsy Malone yeah. into this film. He's like, hey, you're a wise guy, huh? I'm going to get you. I'm going to cut you. He keeps calling him Kitty Cat. Yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's really cat. creepy. Yeah. It's really, really creepy. Well, so, he, he nearly didn't do it as well because because he didn't want to cut his hair to play the role. And they've, they've got him it. on set, like, literally moments before they, him cutting his hair. Yeah, but it's his fa- No one's forcing him to do it, I yeah, imagine. sure, no, like, sure. It's madness. Sure, it's the ego, isn't it? But yeah. obviously, secondary to that is now you see Roman Polanski in a film and because of what happened after he made Chinatown with his exile and fleeing to the Europe before he could be sentenced for the crime that he committed... That means that you, when you see him in this film, again, it could be a sensitivity to him just generally, but I really wished he wasn't in it. And it really brought me out of the film for about two minutes while I sort of shook it off. But equally, really, he's just bad at that part and he should have given it to somebody else. Mm. Um, so anyway, I hate that bit. But I do love the fact that Jake gets his nose sliced because then, again, everyone is in love with this film because your hero has this ginormous bandage on his uh, on his face for the midsection. So he cannot be a good-looking hero because he's got this huge fucking thing on his face. 
It's um, there's a couple of interesting things. I've never seen that move with a knife before in this movie. As yeah, a, as a, it's horrendous. Isn't as it? a way of injuring your hero or anyone, yeah. putting a blade up their nose and then flicking it out, or oh, even you saying it through it's... the front of the nose. There was that bit, and also earlier on, I really like the little touch where he places. Uh, he's got a bag full of pocket watches, mm. yeah, and to find <laughs> out when someone's car moves, he places it under the back wheel, yeah, and then when it's crushed. He goes, right, so they left at that time. I thought that was so clever. Yeah, mm. it's brilliant. Just old school detective mm. moves. And he does something later, doesn't he, where he breaks her taillight of the car. I wondered what oh. he was doing. I thought, I only figured out it was the taillight on this viewing. First time I thought it was her wing mirror. I so that it, she couldn't see yeah, it is. in the side to see that she, he was behind her. No, it's the taillight. Um, so he can follow her in the dark. He knows it's her car that he's following because the t- then there's, there's a taillight not Missing, on. Yeah. So I went with Vicky's theory. Chris's now makes more sense because they still would have had rear view mirrors, so she could have just looked in that. And also, if someone smashed your wing mirror, not to tell you how to drive Fade Runaway, but you'd be like, oh shit, someone smashed my wing mirror. Yep. That's let's odd. Not, let's not spend too much time on what, what, the incorrect on answer. Didn't happen. Let me just Chris delete. Has told, like, Chris has told us a fact, so let's move on <laughs> from that fact. It's not even Tilly trivia, it's a fact. <laughs> So an interesting point here is that now Jake kind of understands that he's involved in something much bigger than his initial case. And he is compelled to get to the guys at the top. And when one of his associates says, why are you doing this? And he says, so I can sue the shit out of him. He doesn't say sue the shit out of him. But do you think that's true? Like, do you think he's motivated so much by money that he wants to bring this whole thing down for money? Or is there another reason in his character that means he wants to uncover every single thing that's going on? Isn't it his reputation? Mm, I think that's an element of it, yeah. There's that line where he says, I'm not the guy who's meant to be caught with his pants down after he makes the front page um, of the paper for something that didn't go right for him. So I think it's about sort of restoring his reputation and proving he is the best because he seems to be in competition with other people in his line of work. Claude, for example, the guy who he spends a long time taking the piss out of saying he can't read and what have you. Yeah. it seems like he wants to be the best. I agree, and and uh, and yeah, and he's been embarrassed by these people. Yeah. He's been humiliated. But I, I I spent this time watching it, trying to figure out if he's a good detective or not, because he's obviously got a very good reputation. He's got a nice office with a big team. He's got enough money to afford a lot of watches. <laughs> he's he seems to be doing well at his job. But I th- I feel like he makes a lot of mistakes in this film. Okay, from from the moment from the beginning. So you, you said about uh, Diane Ladd, the the original Mrs. Mulray, clearly not the right woman, a good detective would have figured it out while she was in the room. That's true. Um, and from that moment on... Or just checked. Checked somehow. Yeah. God, I should probably find out. Because anyone can walk into the door and go, I'm the king of Sweden, so I'm, I'm going to need you to do this. It's like, right, sure, king. But, but, but from that moment onwards, he's on the back foot. And I would say that you know the things he does at the end of the film ends up um, getting uh, Mrs. Mulray killed. Yeah. He he makes a couple of mistakes at the end there, whether it's through his ego or through uh, bad detective work or uh, greed. <laughs> and uh, what's worse is he's made the same mistake previously once already. And that's mm. the whole thing about Chinatown. It's yes. like yeah. he, is, went wrong. he has literally done this whole thing before where he says, I yeah. tried to help someone yeah. and I failed and they ended up getting hurt. And it's and like, you know, you've done that. So surely you were aware mm. of how that might come about again. And they do allude to the fact, I was really paying attention to this on, that it was a woman that yeah, he, yeah. he was involved mm. with, that he was in love with. And so, so yeah, I do wonder if he is not a particularly good detective. As you yeah. say, maybe maybe he would be, you know, maybe seeing what was in that pond, maybe he would have solved it all right at the beginning and, and through no fault of his own, he wasn't able to follow up on that. Mm. But 
yeah, I wonder if he's just That's, rubbish. Because when you say, having said that, when he's laying out what he costs to Mrs. Mulray mm. when she wants to hire him to find yep. Catherine, um, the money that he's quoting actually is all right by today's standards. Like if it's just driving around in a car and like following yep. someone, it's like $55 a day, whatever, and then bonuses, bonuses and expenses. And, bonus, yep. and when he's telling her the fee, I was thinking that is a lot of money. Like maybe you're not quite worth, I'm surprised that you command that fee. Mm. But I didn't interrogate that feeling, but it is that, isn't it? It's like, maybe you're not quite as good at this as... Yes, he wasn't well, He wasn't smart enough to save her or... Yeah. He was smart enough to solve the case, but not smart enough to save her. So let's talk about Evelyn. Um, Jake and Evelyn go for dinner. It's a weird dinner. I don't think she wants to be there, but he sort of... She is. Um, and... It's because the director just pulled her hair out. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> and so we start to see what a wreck she is whenever her dad is mentioned. Mm. Um, which is uh, for me is a difficulty with this film yeah let's just do this now so we never see a sort of shattering of her um coping mechanism for how she deals with her dad the minute he's like what's your what does the c stand for and she says it's cross and then she's like Whoa! like that's because she cannot talk about her dad at all and there's not in, she doesn't have enough in her to have like a defense mechanism that is then slowly eroded like she's just a wreck and she's just a wreck from she has one scene where she's powerful when she walks into Jake's office and mm. says she's going to sue him. And then after that, she is a bit of a wreck, a bit wibbly, um, understandably. Yeah. I, th- I think she keeps that facade up. I think it's just, as you say, when the father gets mentioned. So there's that scene and there's obviously the scene when they're in bed together and she receives that phone call and finds out that she's seen her father. And then she suddenly seems very vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but I think I think she keeps that facade up. In other scenes, like when they have tea outside the house, yes, I think she's still very put together. Yeah, um, which makes which makes it a surprise when she you do realise what has happened to her and the fact that she is the victim in this story. Yeah, because she's the last person you would think when she's introduced. Yes, yes, don't know. Well, well, let's talk about her dad, but let's um have a short break first. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so uh, Noah Cross, as played by John Houston. Director what... of Escape to Victory, which we've previously <laughs> done on the pod. <laughs> what he's best known for, obviously. Um, Jake goes to meet Noah at the Albacore Club, based on a real private members club in LA called the Tuna Club, uh, which Churchill visited once, if anyone cares about stuff like that. My dad would. Would he? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's for you, Dad. Oh, there you go. Um, so what do we think of... And t- But is this true? I didn't actually do this amount of research. Jack Nicholson is with Angelica Houston at this time. Is that correct? So I've got a little bit of a quote on that front. Okay. So, uh, yes, they'd recently uh, got together... I think she slept with him the first time they met. That she went to a party at his house, and he was just so charming. She was like, "I was straight in bed with him." You this feel, lot, this feels like Chris telling us a story about a couple of his friends. Yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> what happened? She went round to his house, and they slept together the first night. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, well, she's very. She's only very quite recently released her autobiography, so she's been very honest with these stories, and they're all great stories. Uh, and I think they just moved in together, at uh, the start okay. of this shoot. And so this is a quote from her about about uh, what happened here. Um, she said, when dad asked me to come visit him on the Chinatown set, I agreed. I hadn't seen him for almost six months. We had lunch at a long table outdoors, Jack on one side, my father on the other, Polanski at the head. I sat down quietly beside Jack. Out of nowhere, my father, eyeing him malevolently, said, I hear you are sleeping with my daughter. Long pause. Mr. Gitties. I went bright red and then I realised they were rehearsing. Everyone burst out laughing. <laughs> That is, that is messed up. It's really messed up. Also, he's not rehearsing because he got his name right. And <laughs> when they're filming it, famously, he keeps he insists on calling him Mr. Gitz. Yeah, um, which I like. But yeah, I mean, John Houston is famously a very tough, no-nonsense guy in real life. Yeah. So this there's a lot of John Houston in Noah Cross, as you're seeing him in this film. This is the only acting performance that he talks about being proud of his performance oh, really? in this movie yeah it's the only so one he did, he did a surprising amount of acting mm, yeah but this is the uh, mm. again like he's, he's very good he was very he's been very flippant about his acting i think he once said it's a cinch and they pay you as much as they do to direct but mm. uh, in the case of this movie he's very proud of his performance and it's great there's so many little touches in that first meeting that could have so many different meanings and are so strange like when the fish dish mm. gets placed in mm. front of Jake first, yeah, and John Houston and Noel Cross puts his glasses on to take a look at Jake's plate of food. Now, and it's just why? Why is he sort of is he approving it and making sure what's being served to his guest makes him seem affluent and like this is the perfect meal? Is he seeing what it's like? Is it? It's just is it passive aggressive? Going, I'll see if I want that one, yeah. and I might give you the other one. It's just a very strange little tick to do. The, I think the real answer is, and not dismissing what you said, it sounds like I am. You, uh, Jake needs to see his glasses for mm. later on. Ah. But in order not, not to be just a rubbish moment of script where it's like, oh, but Jake has seen those glasses because Noah Cross looked at his fish, you then get the brilliant line, which is Noah Cross explaining what he's doing and says, I hope you don't mind, but I, I get them to serve the fish with the head on. Mm. And then it's like, oh, I hope you don't serve the chicken like that. That's one of my favourite lines, weirdly, of the whole film because 
it, some people are weird about fish having their heads on because they look dead and scary, but it's such a gnarly, scary fish. It's not like a little delicate whatever. It's yeah. like got teeth. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a fish. No, it's a really spiky. I thought it looked really tasty. So did I. But it's... I did too. I was starving when I watched this. Um, that, the character Noah Cross as well is an influence on two famous characters that have been in movies since then. Do you know the two characters? Condor Man. <laughs> is it House? Daniel Plainview of There Will Be yeah. Blood fame. Yeah. And the prospector from Toy Story 2. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Is it true? Yeah. I was thinking of him. They put a bit of Noah Cross into him. Stinky Pete. <laughs> Stinky Pete. Stinky Pete is based on Noah Cross. Wow. Wow. You can see it now, though, can't you? I'm not sure that glasses thing is right, though. Okay. Because, only because... When Jake does find the glasses and then he invites Noah Cross over. Oh, yeah, he doesn't know. Does he doesn't he? know until he makes Noah Cross read something. He goes, Can you just take a look at this? And yeah, Noah Cross right. puts the glasses on. Yeah. And at that point, he's yeah, like, right. Ba ba ba, case solved, bitch. Also, he has to be told that they're not Hollis's glasses. Yes. Which is a bit daft. Yeah. But also, as you say, in this scene, as in a lot of the film, there's a double meaning to everything. Mm. Or, or, you know, hiding in plain sight again. He says to to, to Gitties, you know, you're, de- uh, you're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. You may think you believe, you know, but believe me, you don't. He's, he's telling him to walk away. He's telling him, oh God, he says, I'd like to help her if I can. Talking about the daughter. Yeesh. Just find the girl. Like all his lines are so terrifying the second time you watch the film. Yeah. He's so menacing. I mean, he's genuinely terrifying. A yeah. terrifying character. Yes. And it's because he's so big as well. That's what we were saying. Uh, could... It's his size. Yeah. But no, I don't know that he could... I'm not going back to... I don't think he could kick the shit out of you, but I think he just exudes... Actually, maybe. He's got strength. If he got in close enough, he could... He would destroy you, Alex. <laughs> he would destroy you. I'm slippery. Like, I'd be... I'd honestly, you know, put a bit of oil on me, straight out of his grip. Someone write some fan fiction for us. Alex Zane now across in a wrestling ring. Oh, don't. <laughs> Um, so Jake, in uncovering more of the scandal and the conspiracy, um, ends up in the orange groves. And this scene, I, first time I thought it was funny and second time I thought it was funny. And maybe that says more about me than it does about the writing. But he has a fight with some farmers mm. in the orange groves. And it, to me, it was just a comedy fight. Yeah, like, I, th- I think it's great, though. because it I think it's funny? I think it is. Okay. I think there's supposed to be humour there, but also I just think it's very realistic. Like the guy uses his crutch yep. to hit him. Yeah. And the first time he ends up hitting his mate rather than Jake. Yep. Yeah. And obviously they could have reshot that. They knew that he hit the wrong guy, but I think it's how this kind of stuff would go down in real life rather than a Hollywood version of a fight. Yeah. There's, and there's, is there music at that bit? I can't remember, but that, maybe that's... It's sort of. There's that music. That's, that's what I'm remembering. But no, I think that is funny and I think it's intentionally funny. This is after he's been to the records hall and does the worst... Uh, oh, the cough. The yeah. spy thing. The, the... <laughs> yeah, that's funny as well, though. That's funny. Yeah. The, the cough and tear. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. funny. I, I don't... Uh, yeah, I guess so. It's yeah. sort of we've come a long way down from the pocket watch thing, which I really admired, yeah. to go... <laughs> yeah, with that city because it's super annoying man as well that he's getting wound up by. But that yeah. scene gets so much room to breathe. It's it, if you filmed it today, I think you'd go in, you get your job's worth, then you do the and then it's done. But he spends ages going, "I'm sorry, sir, this isn't a lie." But it's like, oh god, who cares what you think? <laughs> we just, I think, yeah, you could tell about a lot of scenes in this film, yeah, um, for better or worse, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But a lot, all of it's given time to breathe. Like it is a stately pace. The, yeah, there's a bit where the fake. Uh, Evelyn Mulray from the start gets in touch with him to try and point him in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And he goes, tell me who employed you to come in here and pretend to be 
uh, Mrs. Mulray. And she goes, I'm not going to give you that information. But if you look in the obituary section of the LA Post today, uh, you'll find the answer there, which seems silly. Uh, it seems like she's basically gone. The answer's in there. But I, I mean, I'm just going to create more work for you when mm. I could just mm. tell you. And I have told you it's in there. But I'm not really telling you. It's I, I think, it's dragging it out, isn't it? It's a, a really long-winded way of telling him the information without actually just going, it was this guy. Yeah, and especially as when we go to her home and we see the phone, we draw together that she made that phone call from home. So it only works if she's like, I can't say the name out loud because I'm in a public place. Yeah. It doesn't say yeah. that. And then says, go to the obituary column instead. Yeah. That works. Robert Town, if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're listening. You hack. <laughs> yeah, not such a perfect script now, is it? Gave you an Oscar for that shit. Joking. So this section of the film is, to me, where Evelyn and Jake are going to sort of move closer together. They have a they have a brilliant comedy set piece in a rest home. Is it called the Marla Vista? Mm. Marla's on the rest home. Um, and that is to try and uncover who is buying the land because the people that are buying the land are all deceased and they're trying to figure out how that could take place. But as a comic set piece, Jack Nicholson is astonishing in this. He's amazing. But mm. Faye Dunaway is also very good. And you could sort of see the makings of a completely different film where they sort of somewhere between like Bonnie and Clyde mm. and this mm. and some a bit something a bit more screwball. A bit of a caper, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which I really like. It, yeah, it because she's kind of like, shocked by what he's doing. You're looking in her eyes and then she's kind of going along with it yeah, and she then she teams it. up with him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, Which I like. I didn't really understand the references to the Albacore Club uh, too much. I didn't know what that was about. You know, he sees on the flag yeah, yeah. that it's from the Albacore Club and she's like, my father actually owns that club. Yeah. I didn't understand how that fitted into everything else. I didn't see what that clue meant. Members of the Albacore Club mm. are using people from the rest home as fronts ah, to buy the land. I didn't understand And then it. those people right. pass away. Right, right, right. But they, so they, Because that's why the people in the rest of them are so, are so nice, because they're sort of dupes. So the Albacore Club, it's all... And it, what they're trying to do is contain the evil. So it's all taking place in the Albacore Club. Got you. There's no one else. And it's John Houston who's the ultimate evil of that club. Lovely. And Winston Churchill, etc. Uh, no, not really. So then... Um, this this I like this scene, but it is it's strange. So Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway they sleep together, but after she cleans his nose, which I just thought was so gross. Like he's got no shame. He's like, "Have you got any peroxide?" And I was like, "What? You're gonna cl- what? Why? Just just pretend it's fine. You can't be like, have you got any disinfectant? It does for look the nose? it looks a lot better after she does that though, That's which true. makes you sort of more engaged with this couple sleeping together because he looks beautiful again. He does, and he does. I to me, he uses a version of the oldest line in the world, which is, "You have such beautiful eyes." Now it's a nice line because it's like, "Oh, your eyes are flawed and it's got a bit of black in it or whatever." But she's like, "Oh, do I?" <laughs> and then <that> works, <laughs> which is rubbish. But then. Then she's really like, she's like kittenish and soft and happy. And she's like, tell me everything about yourself. And he's just like, nah. <laughs> like, he is so not into you, Faye Dunaway. <laughs> like, give it up. Which works for him, I think, apart from this is the classic scene, which is also repeated in LA Confidential, where now that we slept together, tell me something about yourself. And he's meant to say what really happened to him in Chinatown. And you do get a bit of information out of him, but it isn't as much as she would like. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Would it have been better if he was a bit more open with her? I don't know. He, he tell, that, this is when we find out he was trying to keep someone from getting hurt and then ended up making sure that she did get hurt. Yeah, but what does that mean? Nothing. I was more disturbed with the fact that when he gets dressed to kick her wing mirror, 
off. Um, <laughs> he uh, he pulls his trousers on without any underwear, which is disgusting. Uh, because what well, you are you wearing underwear? I always wear underwear. Oh, I always wear underwear, especially with an expensive suit. And he's clearly a man who likes an expensive suit. But he likes it's a like, cream suit, he likes, doesn't he? <laughs> he likes a cream suit. Which whoa, whoa, whoa! I thought we were trying to be classy and smart. Look at your face. I don't know what you're talking. I'm just right, saying. I don't, I don't know what I'm talking if about. Either, if, there's, if there's if uh, there's leakage in a cream suit, that's not what you want. No, that is what we're talking about. Yeah. That is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I just Fine. think it's a it's a very strange thing to do. I, and, unless he was basically going, I'm in a rush to kick a wing mirror off, so I'll just put this on now and then I'll go back and put some pants on afterwards. Not American pants, UK pants, UK. underwear. <laughs> okay. Um, and now the uh, the threads of the mystery start to come together, as is typical for a film and a, a story like this, where you sort of tie it all together, sort of in a rush to the last act. So we discover that Hollis had salt water in his lungs. Um, it's his glasses, or Jake believes it's his glasses in the pond, and then you understand the bad for the grass reference because there's salt water in the pond. We've also seen that uh, fake Mrs. Uh, Mulray is dead. We do yeah, visit her apartment. we do, don't we? And... We see an, he sees an iceberg lettuce on the floor. Mm-hmm. I think it's that or a cabbage. It's one of the two. It's a cabbage. It is a cabbage. It is a cabbage, is a cabbage yeah. right? And the score at that point never has a cabbage looked so <laughs> menacing. The way Jerry Goldsmith's score comes in and he sees the cabbage in like fucking hell. What's around this corner? Some shit has gone down here because that cabbage should not be there. <laughs> And we're going to get now to the uh, a very, very well-known and sometimes parodied and an easy scene to take the piss out of, but it's still very powerful, which is where Faye Dunaway reveals the nature of her relationship with her dad. So you get, um, she's my daughter, she's my sister, on and on again. <laughs> See, you're laughing because it is, I mean, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, I just wish, it just, if it if only gone, oh shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have stopped hitting you because I, I thought you were just taking the piss, going, yeah. but winding me up. But she's your daughter and your sister. Yeah. Can we rewind to like one hit ago? Because yeah, that, it's that final hit was too much. It's a difficult scene because you're up and down because at some points it's comical. It's comical because you're nervous because of what she's saying. So you laugh to release the tension. But like you say, if he wasn't such a dick about it and was like, oh, I'm listening, then I he would have got it. I didn't laugh at all. The thing is, it didn't have the power for me the first time and it didn't the second time, which is so strange, really. But it's it harks back to something I said earlier, which is because I've never seen Evelyn and Noah together, What I what's being subverted, or inverted or corrupted is an established moral, which is you don't sleep with your children. But because I've never seen them two together, I don't go, oh, I never thought that about you two. I just think that generally about the world. But because there's no establishing base of them seeming like a normal father and daughter, the shock is a a, a moral shock. But, it, but then it's supposed to make sense if it's going to be an allegory uh, and a tragedy, then you don't need to relate it to an individual couple. So you'd have had them share a scene earlier in the film? Yes. Okay. Where they seem off, mm. damaged, but ostensibly normal. And you pass it off as that's just that's what money has done to this relationship. It, and then you find out it's not. It really upset me watching it this time. Um, it's interesting. Robert Town talks about, I guess people have said to him about, about the violence in that scene. And mm-hmm. is it unnecessary? And his answer was, um, you, you, you don't believe anything in a movie if it's freely given, especially information like this. So he believed that this should this information should have come out by force. 
Now, I'm not sure I buy into that. No. But that is his justification. Um, when they were shooting it, Roman Polanski didn't think Nicholson was being forceful enough. That's a good detail. Um, and But it was Faye Dunaway who actually asked him um, to slap her. Okay. And hit her harder. Fine. Um, which he said, Nicholson said, I didn't slap her harder, but it made me less hesitant to slap her because I think he was pulling his punches. When yeah, he was I doing think it. we should also be mindful of the power dynamic on a film set, which is even if an actor says, I would like, I'm, I'm giving my consent for you to hit me harder, but it's fallen in line with what the director has already asked, then she's not on an equal footing with the director. And so it does mar the idea of a freely given consent in that situation for me. To go personally. back to to go back to what Robert Town said about the um needing to come out by force, she has pretty much lied every time he has asked her a question yeah. until this point in the film. So I kind of understand that, you know, he is now so desperate for the truth because she has. Every time he's gone, just tell me this. And it's been a lie. She's mm-hmm. lied repeatedly. So I'm not condoning the force, but I can see why at what point do you make sure mm. that this is the truth? And the audience it... knows that what she's saying now is the truth. But and possibly because of what it's taken for Jake to get that information. Let's move it away from her for a second and think about at the start of the film, he's quite a dapper, easygoing chap. Mm. And he doesn't seem like the sort of man that would um, use violence easily. And then he does. So, and again, similar with LA Confidential, it's like the the city, the crimes, what you've seen, what you've had to endure has forced you to this point. Mm. So it says more about his character. And also there is a, there's a line here that for the first time I thought was really off, but I think it's there to make me think that Jake is a little bit off. So she says to him, do you understand this or is it too tough for you? And then once he gets it, he's, pro- he's processing the fact that her daughter was fathered by her father. And then he says, were you raped? And I just thought, what the, f- what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Like, what? No. I mean, what? What? What does that mean, Mr. Gitties? Like, was she raped? There's so much to unpack there, but I've kind of left it. It's not... It's yeah. not a reasonable question to ask someone in that situation. And there's no answer that she can give. She shouldn't be being asked that question. We, I don't know about you, we don't know that many rich folks. <laughs> and who knows what goes on in those mansions. Old money is old money, and it's weird. It is weird. Um, I think he's just struggling to grasp it, though, isn't he? He's getting it completely wrong. But I'm, I feel like he's never heard anything like this before in his life. And it's just... Um... So that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because he's... he's an old hand and he's he's been on the police force and all the rest of it and but he's never heard of anything that shocks him like this i'm not i'm not saying i don't believe that but i'm just mm. saying that's um like a, a yeah a valid point for that character um and then to so then we're moving to chinatown because jake is going to meet evelyn and catherine in chinatown and we're getting to our very famous showdown so Evelyn tells Jake that the glasses belong to her dad, which is a bit lame, really, because it's like you, you she gives she gives you the sister daughter revelation, but she could have not because he's like, I've got these glasses and I'm going to call the police, and so she sort of tells him she's like, okay, well, all the cards are on the table now, blah blah blah, and then she's like, oh, but they're my dad's, she not my husband's. I don't think she says that. She just says they're not her husband's because Hollis didn't wear bifocals. Oh, yeah, that you're right. She doesn't say... Mm. She doesn't say they're her husband's. No, no, she just just informs him of who they don't belong to. Apologies, Robert Town. Now we're we're back to zero, so (laughs) (laughs) he'll be really relieved about that. You've made par, Robert. (laughs) So there's a very, very um, chilling scene here where Jake speaks to Noah about Evelyn 
And Noah makes it clear he doesn't feel responsible for the abhorrent nature of their relationship. And it's, a re- it's even really a hard line to say because he says, I don't blame myself. Mm. And you just like, fucking hell, that is hard. At, at the right time, in the right place, it. Um, a man's capable of anything. Which um, is dark. Although I, he, I do feel the like... The right time in the right place. Not the wrong time in the wrong place. I do feel like, yeah. the I do right feel like Noah's a bit like a Bond villain here, though, telling him what his plan was and yeah, explaining yeah. the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. um, which I don't think Noah would do. But yeah, this is when Jake really messes up, isn't it? Because if he... She was leaving town. Yeah. She was just leaving town. And then as soon as Jake got involved, he got to go to Chinatown and he goes and meets with her dad. And it's the whole reason that she loses her life at the end of the film and yeah. he gets the girl because Jake put his nose in. Yeah. They would have been gone. Yeah, is that a bad ending? I think I got a bit confused at this point. So it's not good that the daughter ends up with a sort of lovable grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were well, being she's, serious. She's his too. She's his too, so... Did you see how nervous I looked there? <laughs> no, I don't believe that's the best outcome for Right, that. right, right. right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right, because Jake calls the police not to do the right thing, but to sort of prove to the police to that he's off. kind it's of got this. Yeah. yeah, it's his ego. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, yeah, Jake, Jake really messes up here, which Again. is, I, I think, you know, why there's that look on his face. Not only that she's died, but he knows it was his fault. And yeah. how she dies. I mean, there are two bodies in this that I found shocking. Uh, Hollis Mulray, mm. when they pull him out of the reservoir, the expression on his face, that wide-eyed terror is awful. And then Faye Dunaway with a hole where her eye should be. Yeah. Awful. It's really, really powerful. So they had a big row over the ending as well. I mean, this is all down to Polanski. Um, why this ending uh, works here because Robert Town, the ending he wrote was that Faye Dunaway killed Noah Cross mm. her father and was going to go to jail for that so not a happy ending mm. but a more complex ending maybe um, but Polanski said that the story had been so complicated that it needed the clarity and the simplicity of this ending where she actually dies and he gets the daughter yeah. and um, so Town eventually agreed with him. And to this day, you know, I think he's thankful that happened because that obviously helped him get his Oscar. He's made peace with it from what I've read. Um, Roman Polanski said, you know, if we had the happy ending, we wouldn't be sitting around talking about it today. And, and I it's not a happy ending. True. She goes to prison for the murder of her own father. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a different, it's just a different grim ending. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, um, Evelyn shoots Noah, the police shoot Evelyn, but you don't see it. She's She's gone. She's down the street, but they really fucking shoot her. They like shoot at her four times. And then she obviously falls on the car horn and you just hear this very long beep. I feel mm. I've seen that in subsequent films. I think that's yeah. being used a lot. A car being shot at a distance and then the horn going off signifying someone's dead. Yeah. And then everyone rushes over to the car and Catherine is screaming her head off. And John Houston sort of grabs her. Oh, it's really, really so... disturbing. And just sort of grabs her head. He's going on about being her grandfather or whatever, which is awful. And then just takes her away. Mm. And that's it. Yeah. What does Jake say at the end? What's the last line? Are you being funny? No. <laughs> I couldn't make it out. <laughs> so, uh, so interestingly, again, there was no scene that took place in Chinatown in Robert Town's script. And Polanski said, we've called it Chinatown. <laughs> we should have a scene in Chinatown. Well, it was called Water and Power. So sure. That's but, 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 no, but they had changed the name to Chinatown by that point because they keep talking about Chinatown and it was this metaphor. But he said, we've got to have a scene in Chinatown. So that's why it takes place in Chinatown because of Polanski. And also... Um, Town had the line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, but didn't know where to put it, could not decide where to put it. And they spent ages and it might, I think it might have even been on the day they decided to stick it in there. It's amazing. Do you think it's become amazing over time 
or it just is perfect. It's a perfect way to end that film because it sums up everything uh, allegorically, mm. metaphorically, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's one but, of those lines that you can use in your own life. Yeah. You can, you can say that and everyone knows what it means. It's, you know? It's sort of, it's, it's up there with Bangkok has him now from Hangover Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those up there with that. Maybe not quite as good as that, but it's up there. Robert Town, if you're listening, (laughs) something to aspire to. And it ties back to the line you said at the start about, you know, him telling the original Mrs. Mulray, forget it, let dogs lie. Yeah. Um, It's better off not knowing. And that's what, you know, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown means. Mm. It's this futility in what they're trying to do. Which, uh, to be fair, took me a few years to process. The first time I saw the film, I was like, well, that's very convenient that it's ended in Chinatown and you get to say, (laughs) forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, because you called it Chinatown. It took a really long time for the full meaning to sort of yep. drip through that it's all about uh, you, you, there's certain things you can't change and things you can't escape from and stuff like that. The original line he'd written was forget it, Jake, it's Toontown. <laughs> but that didn't work because Roger Rabbit hadn't been made yet. Mm. So. <laughs> so it's up there, though. It's up there. Uh, Bangkok has him. Forget it, Jake, it's Toontown. <laughs> Both good. <laughs> um, that's everything I have on Chinatown. All right. <laughs> Uh, only other things I've got. It, it, I thought this was an interesting fact. The um, uh, a, a body called the Asian Americans for Fair Media actually picketed this film. Right. They were unhappy with uh, Asian stereotypes in the movie. Yeah. At the time, so this that was a thing that happened. Uh, obviously, it only won one Oscar, even though it was nominated to, for tons of them. Mm. Um, and that was because of the Godfather Part Two, uh, probably fairly. And it was supposed to be a trilogy about LA. The first film was this one, 37, then 1945, and then the third film was supposed to be 1953, the year that the no-fault divorce went into effect in California. That was the overarching plan. Um, It didn't happen because they ended up squabbling with each other quite a bit, Town and Evans and Mm. Nicholson. You have a lot of egos at work and Polanski. And then we got the two Jakes nearly Mm. 20 years later, which... I've seen that. Yeah. It's fucking awful. It's not good, is it? (laughs) Jack Nicholson ended up directing it. That had a few false starts. Mm. Went through a bunch of casts. Harrison Ford was in it at one point. As I said, Robert Evans was in it (laughs) at one point. And it ended up... Harvey Keitel got that role. Mm. And yeah, it's just just not very good. And so they were going to do the third one. But because that was such a flop, never happened. Meg Tilly played uh, Catherine Mulray, the daughter. Is one of the main characters in it. Interesting concept, but just entirely not necessary. Yeah, agreed. Oh, would you like to do the bits? Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, so what was your best scene, Alex? Uh, the John Houston and Jack Nicholson fish dinner. <laughs> yeah. I just love it. I thought it was, I thought it was a fantastic scene. Um, uh, for every reason I said earlier, I think just you meet him, Noah Cross for the first time, and he's just a terrifying, terrifying man and his genial de- demeanour can't hide the fact that he's just pure evil. So, um, yeah, I thought that scene was great. And like you say, the chicken head thing is funny. Uh, I'm going for when, at the end in Chinatown, when they're standing around arguing, where some people there know the truth, others don't. We now know the truth. But the way that escalates, it's so horrifying. Um, and I just think it's the way they perform it is just incredibly powerful. Every Everyone gets like one line, but I just think it's a perfect little couple of minutes that just makes that ending so powerful. I'm going to choose when they, the, the comedy set piece in the old folks' home mm. because it stands out. Um, it sort of exists by itself You can, and because you, you can see another film running parallel to this one. I think it's such a strong scene and I think everyone in it is really, really good, but it is playing a sort of different character to who you've seen already. So that's... 
Yeah, and Roman Polanski can't get to them at the end. He's there. He's got his gun. He's trying to shoot Jake, but he can't get to him because his little legs aren't carrying fast <laughs> enough towards the car. <laughs> uh, your most valuable whatever, Chris? Robert Town. Really? Um, yes. Uh, you know, we 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 love a writer in this room, and this is one of the all-time great scripts, so I think we should credit him, although I am realising now uh, some of the key moments were Polanski introducing them. But yeah, uh, this is the high point of his career and one of the all-time greats. And it's perfectly tuned that all that setup and payoff that we love so much is is just so brilliantly done here. So, Townie. Jack Nicholson is mine. I just, I, I've never, obviously, I've never seen him in this. I only know later Jack Nicholson. So, I mean, I think The Shining is probably the oldest Jack Nicholson movie I'd seen until I was asked to watch this. Uh, he looks great, he sexy, mm. even with his sliced open nose. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I thought he was fantastic. My, I feel the same. I think this is where you see Jack Nicholson becoming the Jack Nicholson that you love. Mm. Um, but he just, and it's just a lot down to his costume as well. Like he looks amazing. Like so he dapper. looks so sharp. Mm. Uh, but he, and he just is, he's very subtly funny. But also, um, when I, before I watched this film, when Mark used to quote it all the time, it used to really annoy me. Like, so him and Helen would like always say, oh, summer colds are the worst and then crack up. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And that used to annoy me. You don't like not knowing things. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. And then I saw Jack Nicholson deliver that line. I was like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> <laughs> but you say it's, it's him becoming the Jack Nicholson we all love. But I think we all love the big Jack Nicholson that he became. But I think it's really nice to see him underplaying. Yeah. And, well, and... see, that's a good point because weren't we talking about this the other week? So we all rewatched The Shining, and The Shining is actually a little bit ruined for me by Jack Nicholson being super Jack Nicholson. Hmm. And I think you could say that Roman Polanski kept him in check a little bit, so he doesn't do the full off the leash nuts Jack Nicholson, hmm. which I don't think either Stanley Kubrick didn't want him to rein it in, or he couldn't because he's just super Jack all the way through it and doesn't seem like. Uh, a reclusive writer. Yeah, and interestingly, um, Nicholson talks about the fact that he... I saw an interview with him where, speaking very slowly, he says, naturally, I speak very slowly. <laughs> and he says that directors didn't really know what to do with me and had a real problem. But he said Roman was the first person who gave me a reason to speak fast. He said, there's so much dialogue in this film, this movie will be seven hours long if you talk at your usual pace. So we need to get you going yeah and uh it's interesting so that's another thing that separates it from a lot of nicholson's performances he does yeah. take his time mm. over a sentence <laughs> <laughs> um what would you change alex um i i think the moment where we uh, first meet Faye Donaway, where she comes in uh from the side office and jack nicholson is telling the screwing the chinaman joke mm -hmm. that he's heard in the barber and he's repeating it and i just He's a very funny man, Jack Gittes, in this movie. He says funny things, like the chicken thing. I just don't think he'd find that joke that funny. It's not that funny. I, I, I think, like, I understand, like, the, 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 the reason for that scene existing, him telling a lewd joke without realising she's behind him. But it's just, I think the joke itself could be better because I just don't believe that he would tell that and then laugh, having heard it already, as manically as he does in that moment. God, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about that in the documentaries, about that scene, about that joke, about the fact it's supposed to represent him being a little bit racist yeah. and him not thinking something's funny that isn't funny, just getting something slightly wrong, mm. which I guess is the reason that's there. But I kind of see where you're coming from there, actually. It, it is an odd moment, isn't it? It yeah. doesn't really sit right with who he seems to be as a person. Yeah, I agree. Although he does make a couple of other racist remarks throughout the movie, so maybe that is like part of his character that isn't really... 
disgust beyond that racist joke yeah. and um, and keep off the grass that bit as yeah. well. What would you change, Chris? Oh, I had trouble here. Yeah, I did. Um, all I've written down is I don't see why it needs to be over two hours. I think it could definitely be shortened and truncated, but I haven't really got anything specific. I like the way it flows and I'm, I'm pretty happy with this film. Um, Wait, so, no so you've got no change? Is that a first? I could definitely so. shorten and truncate it. I don't see why it needs to be over two hours. Yeah, but you can't. Sh- you've got to come up with a bit that you'd lose. Oh, then. yeah. Okay, your bit. Right, great. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm just surprised. I don't think you've ever done no change before. As I say, only if you've got something you want to change. I did struggle. So the only thing I can think of, and I do believe in this, I'm not just saying it for the sake of it, but you could bring in, so you know the little kid on the horse, who I think is Mexican or uh, Mexican heritage, yes. Um, you could bring in more of that child's family, that child's community situation and show some resistance to the water uh, corruption thing that's going on that isn't only white farmers. So show mm. a little bit of the diversity of the resistance because there would have been a resistance. Um, and it's a shame that we don't get to see to put that child in context. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah. Just, he's just a giver of information. But that is really it. Like, and I had to really struggle to get that. So, so that's that. Wow, that is Chinatown done. Um, Chris, you got a quiz? I have. Um, In my efforts to class up the joint, I've been looking at the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest (laughs) film quotes. Okay. Okay. And coming in at number 74 is, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. 74, oh no. So I'm going to give you a few more. 73 (laughs) more. I'm going to give you a few more, and I want you to tell me the film if I give you the line. This was tricky picking these because some of them are so well known. But I won't know the film. You, yeah, you would. Okay. If, if I gave you, and then some of them are so obscure. I've got a better idea. Why don't we just do higher or lower than the quote from Chinatown? Uh, okay, let's go. Number 94. This is in the list. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Oh, it, Spartacus. No, it's, oh my God, it's the one with Robin Williams. Dead Poet Society. Correct. Jeez. Correct. Well done. Number 75, so uh, one above, or one below, sorry, uh, Chinatown. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. A woman says it. (laughs) And it's an old... (laughs) And she goes, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. So what is it? Wait, (laughs) in the deep south. Oh, Gone with the Wind. From about 1957. No, it's, (sighs) it's in the south, but no, not that one. Tennessee Williams, maybe? Oh, thingy! Streetcar Stella! Named Desire. Stella! Correct. I <laughs> got it. I think got it. Yeah, don't shout out other lines from the film. That's I actually don't the, know what it's called. That's not the quiz. You've, you've definitely heard of a streetcar named Desire. I have, yeah. <laughs> All right. Number 64. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Dr. Strangelove. Okay. okay. Uh, number 58. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Ooh, I actually don't know where that's from. I mean, you know it, but obviously you've heard the quote. Um, I don't know. 1974 movie. The Godfather. Two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Vicky gets that one right. I feel there was help in the room. <laughs> you saw the two as well. You saw me put up the two. <sighs> All right, number 56. A boy's best friend is his mother. Psycho. Psycho. Shit. <laughs> Is psycho. Uh, Number 48. Well, nobody's perfect. 
A tootsie. Uh, to- no. Uh, oh, my God. Some like it hot. Jesus. Correct. I, I knew it was men dressed as women. <laughs> <laughs> Just picked the wrong one. <laughs> Number 39. If you build it, he will come. Field of Dreams. Correct. Oh, yeah. Or Wayne's World 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you book them, they will come. So different quote. Yep. Uh, number 32. And if you get this wrong, I'm, dro- I'm, I'm, I'm docking you a point. I thought you were going to quit. So pause it. No. Just pause, pause and think here, because if you get this wrong, I am docking you a point. Okay. Uh, the quote is, uh, round up the usual suspects. So it's not the usual suspects. Or I'm docking you a point. Oh. That's, fu- that's, that's just annoying. That's just annoying. Uh, I put it all out there. Uh, no, I'll keep, you keep the point. Thank you. Uh, that's not the answer, though. No, it's right, not the okay, answer. That's why okay. I said that. Don't uh, say it. The French Connection. Round up the usual suspects. Um, um, I feel like I know why it. By many considered to be the greatest film of all time. Chinatown. Citizen Kane. 40s. <laughs> Casablanca. Oh. Uh. All right, last one. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I think uh, Midnight Cowboy. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I just. <laughs> Correct. I've got two more in case we had a. Uh, if you want them, because Alex has won, but that was just for a tiebreaker. You seem I to got be that enjoying as well, it. kind of. I'll give you the last two. John Boyd! <laughs> Uh, Rosebud. Citizen Kane! Yeah, Vicky gets an extra point. And um, you don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. On the waterfront. Okay. 7 3 is the final score. Congratulations. 7 3. Congratulations, Alex. Oh, Marlon Brando, John Boy. Right. Uh, that was a great quiz, by the way, Chris. Love that quiz this week. Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, so, uh, looking ahead, uh, obviously, we are back on Thursday. I will be taking us through the challenger this week. That is LA Confidential. But let's look further ahead right now because next week it is Victoria's Choices. Victoria, what is your clue for next week's movies? My clue is women can't live with them, can't look after your kids without them. All right. Mm. Women can't live with them. Can't look after your kids without them. All right, that's the clue for next week. We'll be doing another clue on Twitter. Uh, Right, very quickly, please, if you haven't subscribed to us, please do. And uh, also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or indeed other. It is hugely appreciated. Back on Thursday for LA Confidential. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.